This morning, uh, the title of the sermon is The Destruction of Benjamin, Part 2. The Destruction of Benjamin, Part 2. And we're going to be in Judges chapter 20, verses 14 through 48. And I know that's a, those are a lot of verses. But we're dealing with, these, we're dealing with three battles and there really is no way to, to properly, I think, break them up and put them into separate sermons because they're all of one piece. And undoubtedly, as you realize, as we've moved through Judges, that, that um, from chapter 19 on, um, really, uh, one part relies on the previous part. And so it's, this may be one of the reasons why you rarely hear preachers deal with this section, these sections of judges, because you really have to be in a sermon series to address them properly. These aren't the accounts that we, that we like to draw theological nuggets from, because they're, they take explaining, and they're, they're a bit uh, dark and obscure at times, and really... Um, Unless we dig deep and we know what the intention of the author, the human author and the divine author is, it's difficult for us to see good news in it. But good news there is, and we're going to draw that out. So as we saw in part one, all Israel has responded to this macabre call of, of the Levite. All the chiefs of all the tribes of Israel, along with a large army, have assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. We learned this in verse 1 of chapter 20. And the Levite there at this assembly gives testimony to them about these events in Gabeah that led to the death of his concubine. Testimony that was favorable to him and not entirely accurate. And then he demands a verdict against the leaders of Gabeah in Benjamin rather than the culprits, the worthless scoundrels as the ESV calls them which we learn means the sons of Belial, or the sons of Satan. These are the men that committed the rape that led to the death of this young woman. And so Israel, in response, mobilizes for a prolonged military campaign. This Levite, he achieves success unlike any other judge previously in this book. We see it in, in verse 11 of chapter 20, where we learn all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. So a demand is then made throughout the territory of Benjamin. Now therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites, Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. So two issues are apparent in these events. Number one, why is it that Israel responds so wholeheartedly to this call? When in previous calls of anointed judges, they really respond in a half-hearted manner. And secondly, why does Benjamin, the, the tribe of Benjamin as a whole, side with these criminals in Gibeah, rather than, as they are called, their brothers, the peoples of Israel. So I think we could, we could take these two 
issues, and we can incorporate them into one general question that would cover both. Why do people do what they do? So this question, really, if we think about it, has been grappled throughout history by many, by philosophers, by historians, by sociologists, by psychologists in our current age. And lest we forget, even theologians have grappled with this. And most of these experts would tell us that this question is too broad. The answer is too complex for a nice, short, succinct answer. And I have to admit that, yes, there's some truth in that if we're considering events in isolation from one another, events that have seemingly dissimilar circumstances and outcomes. However, there is an answer to the question, which all good theologians know, as well as any serious student of the Bible. People do what they do because they are sinners. Sinners in rebellion against God. Rejecting God. The triune God who has revealed himself in the Bible. Rejecting him as Lord over their lives and making themselves lords instead. And this is the central issue, the theme, if you will, of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That, as I've been calling it, is the no king formula that we find in the book of Judges. Twice in its full form and once in a shorter form. If you thought of that verse, as I'm talking about people being sinners then you're following the book of Judges very well because that's what we need to keep in mind as we read this book. We're not really given exemplary behavior in this book that we're to model. We're kind of given negative examples, especially in the, the, the latter part of the book. Put another way, in our reprobate or natural state, we do what we see to be in our own best interest. Of course, the mind, darkened by sin, is rarely the best judge of that. We look back on the debacles in history and see terrible mistakes and wonder what those people were thinking. Well, in each case, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, whatever it was, looked like a good idea at the time. Notice how the fruit, the forbidden fruit from the tree, as we just heard um, before the sermon, how that was described, how Eve saw it. It's described as a good thing, isn't it? But it's not. It was not. Why not? Because the Lord God forbade it. That's good enough. The fact that it looks good, it looks delicious, um, pleasing to the eye, and that there's going to be a good result, this gaining of wisdom, does not overcome the fact that the Lord forbade eating of that fruit. Another factor I would say that's rarely grappled with when we talk about why do people do what they do is God's involvement in events. 
except for theologians, and, and now even those of the liberal school of theology, it wouldn't apply to them. The, on this, the Bible is, is, is so clear that it's impossible to miss. God is involved in every aspect of our existence. Of course, you know, I'm speaking rhetorically when I say this, is, this fact is impossible to, to miss because most do miss it. Or to be more accurate, I guess, they ignore it or explain it away by various means. But once we realize that God is omnipotent and omnipresent, we see this fact in the Bible and we accept it as true, so we mustn't take care not to misunderstand it in a fatalistic manner as though we no longer have responsibility, we no longer have duties. Although the Bible is very clear, we cannot bring ourselves to salvation. We cannot work our way to justification in the sight of God. This is God's work. But we do have responsibilities, especially after we have been justified by God. This is called sanctification. And even those who are not in Christ, even those who are not part of God's adopted family, even those have responsibility to God. We have a moral law that God has given all people, not just Christians, that that are to obey and do as the law commands. So our decisions, what I'm saying is our decisions are not shams. They're not meaningless. It's not like we just uh, think that we make decisions. We actually do make decisions. And, And most people outside of Reformed theology have this misunderstanding of what Reformed theology is about. They describe it as us mainly thinking that we're like robots. We have no control over any of our actions. Well, the, the Bible teaches otherwise. And, and God, being a God of truth, he would not lie to us and build an imaginary world for us to live in where we think we are independent moral agents making decisions when, in fact, he's just tricking us. That's not biblical. That is not a proper Christian worldview at all. Our decisions are real. They are meaningful. We are responsible for them. However, even the worst of human decisions are used by God to his glory. These two things, I understand, are in tension with one one another. They seem to fight against one another. We're responsible for our decisions, but when we make poor decisions, God uses those decisions, although he is not the author of the sin we engage in. And I hope as we go through this that this may, this may become a little bit clearer, that the examples that we see in chapter 20 of Judges in these three battles may help us to sort this out in our minds. And this idea of these horrible human decisions being used by God to his glory really is an overarching theme in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God is glorified in everything. God wins in everything. Even though very frequently, maybe even most frequently, the human examples we read about in the Bible 
are people that are, are in disobedience to God. Maybe not continually, maybe not always, but every human character that is written about in the Bible at one time is disobedient, at one time does sin. And so there is comfort in this because if we look at ourselves with clear eyes, we see the wrong that we do. But when we read the Bible as God has presented it to us, we see that we are not alone and that God uses people just like us and that God justifies and sanctifies people just like us. As we deal further with the topic of the destruction of Benjamin, realize that in these events, God is acting purposely, purposefully in this. So God, the the true God, the God of the Bible, the triune God that has revealed himself to us is not the magic wish genie in a bottle that many think he is, that, they, that oh, I need something, so I'll pray to God. And, and I don't believe in God because I've prayed to him many times, and he's never given me what I've wished for. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. Neither is he the aloof watchmaker that has built the world like an intricate wristwatch and wound it up and left it on his work table and walked away from it, forgetting it and letting it just run. No, he's not, he's not that. But then, like C.S. Lewis, in his Tales of Narnia, has one of his characters ask about this allegorical figure that represents Jesus Christ. The young girl asks when she's going to meet this character, she asks, is he safe? And her guide tells her, no, he's not safe, but he's good. So we realize that that God is not safe because he's God. That he has powers beyond our imagination. Safe to us is the genie in the bottle. Safe to us is the watchmaker who walks away and is not paying attention. But good to us is the God of the Bible. So now we're going to see the marshalling of the troops in Genesis, excuse me, Judges chapter 20. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. If you could open your Bibles and follow along with me, Judges 20, 14 through 17. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one of them could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. So the belligerence of the Benjaminites is evident from their hostile response here to the demand of the the heralds of the tribes of Israel that they give up, they surrender these evildoers from Gibeah. Hand them over to face justice. They're protecting them. So determined to defend these evildoers, 
The Benjaminites, they prepare for battle, summoning troops from all over the territory of Benjamin, from all the towns, all the cities. And the results of the call-up is tabulated in verse 15. 26,000 swordsmen to go with the 700 chosen warriors from Gibeah. And you have to wonder, once you see the outcome of these battles, is this done to explain the amazing effectiveness of Benjamin against the combined tribes of Israel. And verse 16 that we read describes the extraordinary talent of one group of Benjaminites. So the 26,000 appeared to be ordinary foot soldiers, but there was a special contingent of 700 soldiers. And these men were unique, number one, because they were left-handed, like their fellow Benjaminite, the Judge Ehud, that we read about in Judges Chapter 3, who slayed the king of Moab, Eglon, the, the fat calf, as, as his name means. Um, but, so consider that in these days that we were talking about, a left-handed person, especially a warrior, was considered handicapped. This was not a good thing, um, especially in a contingent of, of right-handed troops, as, as most people are. A right-handed warrior holds his shield in his left arm, on his left arm, and he partially protects the man that's to his left, where a left-handed man, if he's bearing a shield, has it on the other side. So there's a gap in the formation, which, is, um, which, which weakens it. And so the Benjaminites, they took this, and they turned it to a physical and psychological advantage these men were trained as, as marksmen with a slingshot. And interestingly, they were left, as they're left-handed, if you think about it, as they slung that stone from their left hand, they would be striking the right side of their opponent who faced them. The opponent has his shield on the other side, so there's this complete right side of the enemy soldier that is open to these, these shots coming at them. And... They were extremely accurate, as we, as we were told. This is mentioned once and never mentioned again. They kind of fade from the story, and we'll deal with that in a bit. So there's these three battles, and verses 18 through 48 deal with these three battles. In the length of the narrative of these three battles between the Israelites and the Benjaminite forces is really unusual. It's quite extensive. Also, what's unusual is there's a rhythmic and repetitive nature to the account. So there's a threefold division because it reflects the three battles. Although the account of the last battle is greatly expanded, it's quite a long account, the structure of, of this narrative of all battles is clear and deliberate. Each battle uses the same cycle, which I'm going to point out to you here before we get into the text itself. This is the overview in the first battle, they make, that is, this is the, the Israelites, make an inquiry of God. They ask him who should go up first. God answers the tribe of Judah. They attack and they are defeated. The second battle, they make an inquiry of the Lord again. They ask, shall we go up again? The Lord answers, yes. They make an attack and they're defeated. So in the third battle, they do the same thing. They make an inquiry of the Lord Shall we go up again or not? The Lord tells them yes. 
the victory is yours. They attack, and they're victorious at last. So we see the same pattern. So let's talk about this first battle. We're going to be reading from verses 18 through 21 for the first battle. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel arose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went up to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. So this first battle opens with a hopeful thing. The Israel goes up to Bethel or Bethal, the, meaning the house of God. So that could refer to uh, the sanctuary um, or it could be a, a proper name. There was a town, Bethel. Um, so I think it's the town because the, 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 the name of God that's used in Bethel, El, is, is not used, and it's a generic term for, for God. It's not used anywhere in the book of Judges. So I don't think that's what the human author is talking about. It's making reference to the town. They go up there and they inquire of God. So this echoes the opening verse of Judges back in um, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where we read after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. But here, in this case, now, of course, going up against the Canaanites, the, the Lord had already directed Israel very clearly that they were to displace the Canaanites out of the promised land. So the, the Lord had given them that task, that mission. And here, when they go up, and they don't ask the Lord about whether they should do battle against their, bund, their brothers, Benjamin, or not. They just ask who shall go up first. It's like they're making an assumption that the Lord is condoning this. They made a decision for battle without God's counsel. And here, when they do it, the Lord God is referred to by the generic term of Elohim, rather than the Lord or Yahweh, the covenant name. These two details, although they're kind of trivial, I do think they signal something from the human author. It's less than full support of the actions of Israel against Benjamin, I think, that's being signaled here. So Yahweh's response to this inquiry, Judah shall go up first, is appropriate. It's appropriate because the victim, this poor young woman, she was from Bethlehem in Judah. So the Judahites, they have a vested personal interest in demanding justice in the land. One of theirs has been murdered. But the author makes it clear that Yahweh is involved in this conflict, just as he was in Israel's battles against the Canaanites in conquering the promised land. So Israel, eager for battle apparently, arises early in the morning and begins their campaign. And this first battle is, as we read, a resounding defeat for them. The Benjaminites inflict a casualty 
amongst the Israelite army that's almost one for one. For every one of their fighting man, men, they inflict a casualty. The ratio is very close. We know there's 26,700 Benjaminites fighting in this battle. And they fell 22,000 Israelites. And there's no mention of any Benjaminite casualties. We don't know how they did it. Their tactics aren't mentioned. But it's a very lopsided victory. It's a very devastating defeat that Israel has suffered. Now, as we know, if we think about our Bible, this is not the first time that the sons of Jacob have moved against one of their own brothers. Back in Genesis, we have a long account that begins with ten brothers who plot against one of their own, Joseph. First, they plot to murder him, and then, relenting, they sell him into slavery. Benjamin was the only full brother of Joseph. They were both the youngest sons of Jacob, Benjamin being the very youngest. And we're told that Joseph was favored by Jacob, as was Benjamin. They're the only children born by his wife Rachel, the wife he loved. They had a privileged status. And it's in that account of Joseph that God reveals how he works through our evil actions. Near the end, when Joseph reveals to his brothers who, through various circumstances, are brought to Egypt and are, in fact, rescued by the brother that they had betrayed, the brother they had plotted to murder, when Joseph reveals himself to them, they are shocked and they are scared witless because they expect what most humans would expect from another human that they've tried to do in. They expect revenge. But no, Joseph tells them, as for you, you meant evil against me. Good. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is how God takes sinful, evil actions and uses them for his glory. For, for goodness. And we're also given in the Bible a prophetic insight into the future actions of this tribe of Benjamin from, again, the book of Genesis, chapter 49, when Jacob blesses each of his sons. When he comes to Benjamin, he says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. And it's not Benjamin alone amongst the sons of Israel that act wickedly. Ezekiel talks about this. Ezekiel 22, verse 6 and verse 27. This prophet is, reveals the Lord's insight into them. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. So Benjamin here, we're seeing, demonstrates its own brand of loyalty. When Israel demanded they turn over the guilty men from Gibeah for justice, they are unwilling. And they fought furiously against their fellow Israelites. 
Why is this? They made no declaration that these men are innocent. We're not turning them over because they did no wrong. This is vigilante justice. We're going to protect them. No. There's none of that. And the text is clear. These men are evil. What they did to this poor woman was absolutely horrific. It caused her death. In whatever way, shape, or form, we're not told exactly how or when she died, but it was their attack upon her that brought about her death. So what is it? It's simply this. The Gibeonites were Benjaminites. As Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary on Judges, blood was thicker than covenant. Or we might say human sin is thicker or stronger than human righteousness. We are, we are racked by sin, all of us. And in our natural state, we're bereft of righteousness. We have no righteousness. So, of course, what Davis says is absolutely correct. It's got to be. Sin's got to be thicker because we don't have the other thing. We don't have the righteousness. So it's interesting that our Lord, recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 26, he tells us, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see how the Lord is speaking against this idea of blood being thicker than covenant, which we're seeing here. When we're talking about the new covenant, we're talking about the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This brings me to my first point. Point number one is, the cost of discipleship is high to human counting. The cost of discipleship is high to human counting. It's beyond paying in human finances, this cost. It's affordable only by drawing upon the heavenly treasury. And in eternal arithmetic, it is just a pittance. The idea here is the Lord Jesus is to be, must be, first. He cannot be second. He will not be second. If you, if you love others more than him, this sort of witness that you're displaying could be, maybe a cause for your loved ones to stumble in faith with Christ. If you love them more than Christ, you are denying the supremacy of Christ's love. You're saying your love is greater than his. You then are greater than him. And the object of your love is greater than him. But when you love the Lord above all else, then you testify to his unparalleled position and point others to their need for him as their Lord and Savior. Certainly we love our family. We love our wives. You wives love your husbands. We love our children, our grandchildren, our friends. But we love them properly because we first love Christ. Love of others before Jesus Christ 
makes the other your idol. And that idol must then be his or her own savior eternally based on your own testimony to them. That's what you're saying when you love them more than Christ. This, of course, is impossible. It's humanly impossible and leads only to destruction. By loving Jesus Christ, we are loving others to a degree that is impossible otherwise. Then we come to the second battle. Verses 22 through 25. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Benjamin came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these men, all these were men who drew the sword. So the Israelite fighters, they encourage one another after the first defeat, after the first battle, the day before, where they lost 22,000 soldiers. They took courage from one another. That's what that means there. And they prepare for battle in the same place and in the same manner as before. But instead of rushing into battle, we don't see that eagerness that we saw on the first day. They go up to the sanctuary and lament before Yahweh. Now notice, the covenantal name of God is used here. Where in the first inquiry, it was God. Now it's the Lord God, the name he has revealed to Israel. There's a difference in the inquiry. There's a difference in the relationship from the point of view of the Israelites who are going to the sanctuary. They're calling upon their covenant relationship to help them understand what the Lord would have them do. Should they fight against Benjamin? They refer to Benjamin now as our brothers. There's a difference in that relationship, too, that the author is showing us. And after the devastating loss of the previous day, they seem less sure of God's will in this. There's, there's some doubt in here that we should be picking up on. But the answer they receive from the Lord God is an unequivocal yes. So armed with this reassurance of the divine will, the next day they launch a new attack against the Benjaminites. But the results were not much better. This time, 18,000 Israelite fighters are killed. And again, no word about any Benjaminite casualties. As far as we know, Benjamin has not lost a single soldier so far. In the third battle coming up, every element that we've seen in the previous battles is present. But it's expanded upon. It goes into a lot of detail. So there's a preparation that's made. In, verses, excuse me, in verse 26 of chapter 20, we read about that. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Not only is there more detail in what happens 
after Israel's two defeats and before the third battle, everything that we read here is intensified. Now the entire fighting force, all of them, go up to Bethel. And not only do they go up, they went up and came to Bethel. The, the author's even expanding upon that little detail. Not only do they weep, they fasted that day until evening. Not only did they weep and fast, they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And all of this is before they even asked the Lord their question, before they even made their inquiry. And their inquiry we read in, in verses 27 and 28, And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go up once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Now the parenthetical information that we're given in this passage tells us why they were going up to Bethel. Because that's where the ark, that's where the high priest was at that time. And in this third inquiry of Yahweh, we can see the anguish and the reluctance of Israel to continue in this war against Benjamin. They're, they're losing massively in this. And each time they've inquired of the Lord as to whether they should go up against Benjamin, they're given more information. The first time, or they ask for more information, the first time they ask, who shall go up to fight for us? And the second time, shall we, draw, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? Now the third time, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? In this third inquiry, the Israelites even offer a hopeful alternative to God. We can, we can well imagine that they're hoping God will take the second choice to cease. But no. Yahweh responds in a manner fuller than which he responded in before. And he provides positive information to the Israelites that they will be successful. He even acknowledges Israel's use of the personal pronoun in referring to the tribe of Benjamin, where they refer to him as, as really my brother or our brothers. It could be translated either way. The Lord God refers to Benjamin as him or them. It's personalized. And the result is the third battle, which is verses 29 through 48. It's a, it's a long account, and, I, and I'm going to read it now in its entirety. Uh, it really doesn't do well to split it up, so follow along with me. So Israel set men in ambush against Gabeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gabeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gabeah and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. 
And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Marie Geba. And there came against Gebeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these men were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gabeah. Then the men in ambush hurried out and rushed against Gabeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, and those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noha as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways. And they were pursued hard to Gidom, and 22,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon, and remained at the rock of Rimon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all they had found. And all the towns they had found, they set on fire. This is very reminiscent of the wars of conquest when, when Yahweh declares harim against the cities of the Canaanites. But this is a city of, uh, of the tribes of Israel that, that is, is suffering so. This is, this is something that is very striking. And it's like, what, what is going on? Why has this been done? And we see in this outcome that Benjamin's Early successes count for nothing. 94% of their forces are destroyed in this final battle. Their defeat is staggering. Military science says when, when an army or any component of a military force loses 30%, 30% casualties, that's not just killed, those, that's men wounded, 30%, it is then ineffective as a fighting force. It is stricken off the, off the rolls of the order of battle. 94% of these men, every single one of them, except those 600 that fled to the rock of Ramon, are dead upon the battlefield. Then Israel conducts scorched earth warfare against all of Benjamin. This, is, this again is staggering. Throughout history, this has been the fate of people who have rebelled against a mighty king or a mighty empire. We see it time and time again. It's not unusual in history for this to happen, 
What's striking is this is happening in Israel at the command of the Lord God by the hands of other Israelites. It turns out, you know what? There is a king in Israel. They've rebelled against the king in Israel. And the king of Israel, Yahweh, has treated them like rebels, like every mighty king has treated rebels. And this is devastating. And judgment from God came swiftly and unexpectedly upon Benjamin. Also throughout history, we see this. We see despotic and evil regimes have risen up and they often rise quickly and they triumph in breathtaking ways. Like they're, they're unstoppable. And, and, and suddenly, violently and irreversibly, they are taken down. They are crushed. We see this in the ancient records in, in the Bible. The Hittite Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Median and the Persian Empire. Outside of the Bible, the Tartars, the Mongols, scourges upon the earth that looked like they were going to conquer everything. And then suddenly they're gone, they're taken down. The Greek Empire rose and then was replaced by the Roman Empire. It was different with them. Why was it different? Unbeknownst to the tyrants that ruled those empires, they were paving the way for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They brought peace upon the earth, the Pax Romana. And then they were converted. The Greek empire became the Eastern Church. The Roman Empire became the Western Church. And through these empires, the gospel was able to move into the pagan lands of Europe and the British Isles, places that the gospel probably could not have gone without the protection of mighty empires. This is how God uses people, governments, nations. So when we look around the world today, and oh, there's a lot of things that we would be worried about if it was not for knowing that God is sovereign. Now, we have no way of knowing how God is using these current events that are going on. But, brothers and sisters, he is using them. They are under his control. We are to pray for peace. We are to pray for those poor and fortunate people around the world that are caught in war zones. War is a horrible thing. War is sin. God does not cause sin, but he will use the evil of war to bring about his glory. We can rest assured of that and keep praying for peace. We are commanded to do so. We are commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So from a literary perspective, what we're dealing here with in chapter 20 really is one of the most effective examples of ironic narrative in the Old Testament. I have an entire volume that deals with nothing but the irony in the book of Judges. It is so thick, and it's fascinating to read it from a literary perspective. Here we have this nation increasingly canonized 
They're becoming like the Canaanites. They're paganized, really. They appear before Yahweh in verses 1 through 3 as the covenant community of God. Suddenly, something happens. The Israelites hearken back to what they are supposed to be. How does this happen? It's not through the efforts of men. It's not through their strength. It's not for them saying, you know what? We're doing this wrong. We need to get right with God. No, God has changed them. Yahweh has called them back. It is his power that is controlling them. Where divinely called and empowered judges had failed to mobilize the nation into unified action earlier in the book of Judges, now we have this nameless Levite of very questionable character and with questionable methods. He's able to rally all the troops, as the author writes, as one man. And the tribe that embodies right-handedness by their very name, Benjamin, which literally means son of the right hand, not only demonstrates its left-handedness metaphorically by being completely out of step with religious and ethical standards, but they field an entire contingent of first-class warriors who are all left-handed. We're being told something here. And Benjamin's little army of 26,000 men is able to rout an army of 400,000 warriors. That's an army more than 15 times their size. And they do it not only once, but they do it twice. And they do it back to back, one day after another. And in the process, they slaughter 40,000 Israelite soldiers without a single reported casualty. But most ironic of all, this chapter portrays the nation of Israel engaged in a holy war, this harim, against their own kinsmen, with all the passion and all the fervor that they should have been displaying in driving out the Canaanites as God had commanded them. And Israel, in all of this, discovers who her own worst foe is. It is herself. And sometimes that's true for all of us. We can be our own worst enemies. But our main concern in this, I think, is what was Yahweh doing in all these setbacks and all the smoke and confusion of battle, especially in the first two days? The author tells us what had happened in verse 35, first part of verse 35 here. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. Who defeated Benjamin? The Lord. Israel didn't defeat Benjamin. Israel got beat up very badly. They got whooped the first two days. Benjamin's defeat was a manifestation of Yahweh's judgment. That's what we are to see in this judgment. The Lord used Israel to bring his judgment against Gabeah and Benjamin. They had violated his law and they had violated his covenant. They had become neo-Canaanites, neo-pagans. They placed their allegiances along with their desires above the Lord and incurred judgment as a result. But... Here's a question to ponder. If the Lord was acting in judgment on Benjamin, why did Israel suffer two major defeats, especially when they had received direction 
from God both times. They were doing exactly what God told them to do. These first two defeats were part of the judgment on Benjamin, surprisingly. By these Israelite defeats, Benjamin becomes overconfident. It makes tactical decisions based on their previous overwhelming successes. And these tactical decisions bring them to ruin. And in the third and final battle, we read in verse 32, And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at the first. They're talking about their previous successes. Look, the Israelites are running. We've seen this before, guys. Let's get them. In verse 39, again, Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. They're resting on their laurels of victory. They're assuming that the Israelite forces will be a walkover again. And lest we fail to notice this, the Lord did not assure Israel of success in these two first battles. Initially, he only, his will is only that Judah go up first for the first battle. And secondly, that Israel was indeed to go up against Benjamin. The Lord underscored that, yes, indeed, you are to do this. And it wasn't until the inquiry before the third battle that the Lord assures them of victory. Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. So we must, I think, ponder here, has Israel also experienced Yahweh's judgment in these first two battles? Does judgment come upon only those who are utterly in the wrong? Or can judgment come upon those who are less wrong and more right, yet not entirely correct? Remember, as we've spoken before, God does not have to choose sides. It's our duty to choose his side, to be faithful and obedient to him. God's acts that seem to be against his own people, and this is an example here with the Israelites, and also the faithful remnant that we see throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. When God seems to act against his people, these acts are medicinal rather than punitive. It's for our own good. It's it's healing rather than punishing. It brings us into a life more abundant rather than removing us from life everlasting. This is a lesson that we learn as young children that sometimes to be made well is an unpleasant experience in the doctor's office. And sometimes as children, to be raised properly, we must be corrected. There's times when our parents properly and appropriately punish us. We do the same for our children. Not our grandchildren. Don't have to do that anymore. I know a lady that is so different as a grandma compared to a mom. It's like she was a Marine Corps DI as a mom. And now she's Mrs. Santa Claus. (laughs) This brings me to the second point. And our third, my third point comes right behind this. So we're getting to the end here. 
Bear with me. Point number two. Our pride becomes greater when it focuses on the sins of others. Now, of course, pride is a sinful thing. Remember that. So I'm not talking about a good thing. Our pride becomes greater when it focuses on the sins of others. By focusing on the sins of others, we're increasing our own sin. This is especially so when the sins of others become more blatant, more outrageous. We're like, I would never do that, what that person just did. I thank you, God, that I am not like that man. Yahweh here directs Israel mysteriously to their own destruction until this very last episode where Israel throughout this receives divine favor and guidance. God is with them, but there's no evidence of this divine help in in the first two battles. It's not until the last battle that we see this. And I suggest to you that this is an enigma a mystery of our own Christian experience. There's times when we are certain of God's divine will because we, we clearly see what the Bible teaches us and what we're to do in, in varying circumstances. And, and our response is clear. It's not a gray area at all. Yet, in following God's way, we find our path more marked by trouble than success at times. So then our, how are we to inter- interpret this when this happens? Are we, take it, are we to take it as a sign that we're outside of God's will? That, well, the Bible must have meant that for back then, and now it's something different because we're modern and progressive people, so we need to reinterpret it. Or is the Lord dealing with us in his hidden ways? Yeah. We don't always know how God's going to deal with events. But we know how they end up, don't we? Eventually. Ultimately. It's for the glory of God and our own good. Initial losses and setbacks must not be an excuse for us to give up. Our commitment to the Lord and his will, based on his revealed word, the Bible, is to be, must be, our life's purpose, our, our goal, our objective is to do the will of God. Everything else in our mortal existence, really our mortal experience in this life, falls under this, is, is guided by this. This has to come first and everything else falls in place, brothers and sisters. So in our understanding of what God did in the battles between Israel and Benjamin, The parenthetical statement that we read in verses 27 through 28, that's the part that's in those parentheses. The author tells us, For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. This is a theological clue. Israel had access to divine guidance through the high priest. Theologically speaking, Israelite, The Israelites, the other tribes other than Benjamin, had the means of grace. God had provided to them the means of grace. Yahweh directs them through his appointed servant, the high priest. Now compare and contrast Benjamin to this. No ark, no high priest, no word from heaven. Benjamin acts alone, apart from God. No access to his presence or to his counsel. There's only divine 
silence for Benjamin. My last point, point number three. Being left alone by God is divine judgment. Being left alone by God is divine judgment. There are many who wish for that. And it is granted to them, often, for a time. Before Benjamin was annihilated, almost annihilated, except for 600 men, God had already judged them by leaving them alone to follow their own way. And some Christians, I think, today delude themselves into thinking this sort of judgment only happens in the Old Testament, that it doesn't apply to us. But they don't understand what the Savior said when, when Mark records in chapter 4, verse 24 through 25, these words of the Lord Jesus. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Or they don't understand when the Lord revealed to Paul, and Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, first chapter, verse 24, God gave them up to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a a debased mind. God's actions in that. So we must develop a mindset based on this biblical worldview. And this is a matter of training and discipline. It's our role in the process of sanctification after God has justified us. There's nothing that any person can do that it does not yet know Christ to prepare themselves for Christ. We are to come to our Lord in the manner we are in. Whatever that is. Sinful, dirty, disgusting. We are to fall at the foot of the cross. But once we are transformed, we begin the process of sanctification. The Lord does it in us, the Holy Spirit, and we assist in it. We are to cooperate in it. We are responsible. We see this in Christ's words in Luke chapter 14, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You'll probably never hear a prosperity gospel preacher preach on that passage. There is a cost to Christian discipleship that the modern Western church often denies. Our Lord clearly refers to this cost, saying, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? That's in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 14, 28. So will you carry your own cross up the hill of execution? That's what bearing your cross means. The cross is an instrument of death, instrument of execution. It's not a niggling little bothersome thing that people refer to, oh, this is my cross to bear. No, it's a means of your death if the Lord so so decrees it. Jesus is asking us, will you pick up that cross and follow me up the hill of execution? That's what I call you to do. I call you to death, and I give you everlasting life. Have you sat down and counted how much you need to complete what the Lord Jesus calls you to do? Here's the thing. 
that which he calls us to do, he equips us to do. Ask him for the strength to carry your cross. Lord, help me to do it. I can't do it alone. But with you strengthening me, I can do all things. That's what Philippians 4.13 means. It's not about scoring touchdowns or winning championships, no matter how many overpaid professional athletes quote that verse. That's not what Paul's talking about when he writes from prison. He's saying, I can only go to my death joyfully because the Lord has equipped me to follow in his footsteps and I do it gladly. This is our example, brothers and sisters. But this is not what we do on our own. I know if we sit and we think about it, I could not joyfully go to my death. I could not sit in prison and look forward to meeting my Lord through a painful, horrible execution. But it's not by our power. This is the Holy Spirit that brings us to this place. We must realize that. The Lord will take us every step that he will have us go. In our natural state, there's no sense counting the cost. We are flat out dead broke. We don't have a dime to build a chicken coop, much less a tower. So it's pointless to count anything. Now, here's the thing about, you know, that we often miss. We read this where Jesus says, you know, if you, hey, he's telling people, if you want to build a tower, sit down and count the cost. Well, they're roaring with laughter. Ward had a wonderful sense of humor. It's like me saying, okay, you want to build the skyscraper? Go home, open up your piggy bank, see how much money you have. Ha, 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 okay, and you're so funny. I can't afford to build a skyscraper. Nobody can. I mean, that takes all this money, financing, yada, yada, yada. That's, in context, that's what the Lord's t- talking about. It's impossible for them to have the money to build a tower. He's telling them that. You can't do it on your own. But I can do it. I can do it for you. You do it with me. So he's not really talking about money, right? We, we understand that. It's metaphorical for everything we have in this life, including our very life itself. That's the cost that we must count. Is the Lord Jesus worth our life? Will you trade a temporary materialistic experience where you'll feel good maybe today, but as life goes on, let me tell you from experience, you're not going to feel good. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's going to be unpleasant. Are you going to grasp that and throw away life everlasting that Jesus Christ wants to give you, that he's, that is offered to you? No, of course not. Not if we think about it. It pales in comparison, doesn't it? So my last point. Live a seriously dangerous faith. Live a seriously dangerous faith. When we live according to the Lord's commands and ask him to supply what we lack and then carry on in faith, when we put our hand to the plow and we do not look back, we live a seriously dangerous faith to the enemies of God, those spiritual Forces of evil in heavenly places, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians about Ephesians 6.12. 
when there's nothing the enemy can do to you to turn you from God's purpose in your life, then the enemy will shrink from you because you are living a seriously dangerous faith to evil forces. Because you are then operating by the power of the triune God who is evident in your life. It's not that we are so strong. It is not that we are so intimidating to the demons and evil forces, the princes and the principalities in high places. No, it's that we bear the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We carry his banner. He is with us. That is our strength. And this must be a matter of daily practice. So avail yourself of God's means of grace continually, just like the forces of the Israelites did in this battle. Be in prayer. Be in the word. Be in fellowship with other Christians. Look to the Lord Jesus' example. He was betrayed by his enemies, innocent yet convicted by a sham trial before illegal courts, beaten, whipped, cursed, spat upon, treated as an object of scorn and humiliation in despicable ways that that no actual criminal should even be treated. Suffering the shame and humiliation of a Roman crucifixion, a punishment specifically intended and designed to dissuade others from doing likewise, to keep others from following him. That was Roman crucifixion. You don't want to do that. You don't want to do what he did. You don't want to experience that. So was this a sign that Jesus of Nazareth was no longer in divine favor? (laughs) No, of course not. This was the plan from the beginning. The Son of God did exactly what he came to earth to do. This was the plan all along. So we may be crushed. Yes, we may be crushed in this life. Yet we have hope. We may receive beatings. Yes, we may. But in the middle of our scourgings, we know that we alone, those who bear the name of Christ, have access to God the Father. We alone, for Jesus alone, as you know, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him. We are like Israel in this account we just read. And we're told this by the author of Hebrews. And I'll close with this verse. Hebrews 10, 21 through 23. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the grace you've given us. We give thanks for the faith you've bestowed upon us. We give thanks that you have drawn us to you, that your power is irresistible, Father, that even though some of us may have ran from you, you still went after us and brought us to salvation. We give thanks for that, Father. Father, bless this day. Bless our coming Independence Day that we celebrate. Father, we pray that our nation as a whole return back to godly principles. 
We pray for our leaders that they may abandon the evil plans, the evil things, the, 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 the evil devilish sacraments that they, they hold up high, Father. Make us, again, a, a nation that honors you. Father, use us in whatever way you would deem to use us. And we give thanks for what we do have. Father, make us ever grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.